Well, I think Peter's striking a very optimistic tone because he's, he's got his green tie on and the Celtics opened last night with a big win. The, uh, the other sacrifice he's been making is not attending as many Celtics games as he would like. So thanks for taking one for the team, Peter. Um, as he mentioned, I'm Harrison Moore. I'm the Vice President for Development. It's my privilege to work with our supporters around the country and our, our Board of Directors. Thank you again to all of you for supporting us. We really appreciate it. I would wager that all of us in this room agree that a free and dynamic market economy produce incredible wealth and prosperity, and that free markets are also morally just. Unfortunately, there's a growing faction on the left and the right that argue capitalism isn't benefiting American workers, society, or the environment, and that's why it's more important than ever that you, me, all of us at Cato raise our voice and expand the influence of our ideas. And that's exactly what Joan Norberg is doing with his new book, The Capitalist Manifesto, Why the Global Free Market Will Save the World. On Monday, the ultimate influencer of our time tweeted to his $160 million, excuse me, $160 million, <laughs> <laughs> Don't we wish? 160 million followers that Joan's book is an excellent explanation of why capitalism is not just successful, but morally right. And that was none other than Elon Musk, which uh, did send, Joan tells me, his book into the stratosphere in sales. So not quite 160 million. <laughs> But soon, I read through the comments on, on uh, Elon's post, and it looks like the majority are pro-capitalism. The rest will just have to send to a re-education camp. <laughs> I'm kidding, though, because libertarians would never be able to agree on the curriculum at the <laughs> education camp. So instead of re-education camps, we need approachable, dynamic, happy warriors like Joan, uh, who embodies and communicates classical liberalism and the power of free markets to broad audiences as well as anyone alive today. We need books like this to put free markets in contemporary terms, update the data so new generations as they're coming to power see this. My millennial friends, Gen Z, they need this badly, and we need work like this to influence leaders and give them intellectual ammunition. His book has already received uh, great reviews from Elon, but also the Financial Times, The Economist. Last week, uh, venture capitalist Mark Andreessen cited Joan, as well as our scholars Marion Tupi and Deirdre McCluskey, in his technical, tech, uh, excuse me, techno optimist manifesto, which I commend to everyone if you haven't seen that. Joan is part storyteller, part scholar, part eternal optimist, and he reminds us every day that as dark as the world can seem, we're living in the most amazing period of human history. We should remember that to effectively advance the critical ideas that have unlocked progress, openness, inquiry, free markets, and the dignity of the individual, we need to do so with a smile, as Joan does. Please join me in welcoming Cato Senior Fellow, Joan Norbert. Thank you so much, Harrison. Yeah, that was fun with Elon Musk. Uh, I noticed that um, he's kind of an influencer and helps getting books flying off shelves. And uh, right now, I'm apparently the number one biggest bestseller in economic history and the number seven in economic history, depending on which um, version of the book um, 
you're, you're looking at. So that was nice. Thank you for being here, all of you. It's, it's wonderful to be here among friends, among people who believe in and support freedom, because sometimes it does feel lonely. It really does. And that's why I wrote this book. Why do we do anything? Because there's a gap in the market. There's something that has to be done, something that has to be said. And right now, it seems like um, few people write capitalist manifestos. And I thought it was time to write one. Because right now, capitalism has fallen into disrepute. There is, we are losing the battle when it comes to ideas of economic freedom and free markets. Did any of you happen to see the latest installment of the Indiana Jones movie franchise? It, it was pretty good, right? I really enjoyed it, but not for its social commentary. <laughs> because in, in one uh, scene, uh, very fraught one, Indiana Jones accuses the villain, played by Mads Mikkelsen, of stealing an ancient mechanism. And he says, you, you stole it. But then another woman intervenes. Yes, and then I stole it. It's called capitalism. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's their take on capitalism, stealing things. And she was supposed to sell it for, for a profit. That's apparently capitalism. Uh, that's the Hollywood take, but it gets even worse when you go to social media and the social sciences. Um, even worse takes on capitalism over there. A recent poll showed that only 21% of Americans strongly believe in capitalism, which means that more Americans are convinced that they have been in the presence of a ghost than are convinced that they've seen the benefits of capitalism. 46% of Americans say that humanity is doomed. 46%, which means that Americans, as usual, stand out as the optimists in this world, because the global average is 56% who think that humanity is already doomed because of a long set of circumstances. And now, worryingly, we get some of these attitude from the conservative right as well. I recently debated a guy who said that now we need more generous social policies, we need higher minimum wages, we need more tariffs, and we need active industrial policy to pick winners in the economy again. Sounded just like an old leftist, but this, no, this was a national conservative from the American Compass think tank. It seems like when Trump broke the party and created a void, some wants to fill that void with the worst bromides of the old left. So now we have lots of people who demonize those who produce, who wants to subsidize those who do not produce, and wants to canonize those who only complain. <laughs> Grievance is the new hard currency. No bipartisanship, they tell me. I think there's lots of bipartisanship, because both on the left and the right, lots of people say that free trade is dangerous, big business is bad, and inequality is off the charts. In effect, that the American experiment has failed and limited government doesn't work. Or as Robert Lighthizer, uh, Donald Trump's old trade czar puts it, libertarianism is a philosophy for stupid people. <laughs> because it's the idea that if you have a problem, 
don't do anything about it, and then somehow it will just turn out for the best. Well, I wrote this book because we hear this all the time. I wrote this book to address these concerns. Are we really stupid? <laughs> uh, has capitalism failed? And in that case, in, in what way? And I do that by addressing all of these concerns. I try to look at all different uh, concerns about capitalism, at trade, at supply chains, security, purchasing power, inequality, big tech, China, global warming. And I try to make the case that free markets stand stronger than they ever have. I use the wisdom of those who came before us. Of, it's the principles from Adam Smith and Frederick Bastiat and Mises and Hayek and Friedman and hundreds of Cato scholars. But I try to apply them to current events and current controversies. Because to me, it looks like we have to update our case. It really is the way it says in my all-time favorite Amazon review of a book. There was this guy who reviewed uh, John Stuart Mill's On Liberty from 1859, uh, which seems like, yeah, too late to affect any of the contents, but you know, he felt like, yeah, he had to say something about it. And the reviewer gave it no more than three stars, just three out of five, because as he put it, while Mill's arguments are sound, his examples are a bit dated. <laughs> and, and that happens, you know? The, our, our examples are, Adam Smith's examples are a bit dated. We have to constantly update it because that's what the opponents do all the time. And here is my updated take. Yes, we live in awful times. In so many ways, when you look around the world, when you follow the news, it's bad. We've had 20 bad, horrible years with the um, greatest financial crisis since the Great Depression, with the biggest pandemic since Spanish flu. We've had um, a series of crises and, and events. Putin starting the biggest industrial war in Europe since the Second World War, and now the atrocities of Hamas with the prospect of another endless war in the Middle East. It's been bad. It is terrible. It's difficult not to wake up in the morning and thinking that the world is going to the dogs. On the other hand, here is a, another data point that sheds some light on the time we're living in. These 20 years have also been the best 20 years in human history when we look past the headlines and look to the trend lines, the objective indicators of human well-being the kind of lives we're all living. Because face it, if we would have been here around the turn of the millennium and someone would have told you that look, in the next two decades, we will have terrorist attacks in, in New York, we will have the pandemic, the financial crisis, We've had, we'll have endless wars everywhere. I think most of us would have suspected that we would now live in a post-apocalyptic movie. It would be Mad Max, it would be the last of us. And yet, if we look at the objective indicators, that's not what we're facing, right? On the contrary, when we're looking at wealth and incomes, around a third of all the wealth that humanity has ever attained 
Around a third of it was created during these past 20 years. Extreme poverty declined by 130,000 people every day over two decades. Every minute that someone said that neoliberalism and free markets are, are destroying the world and, and hurting the poor, 90 more people rose out of extreme poverty. Child mortality declined by roughly half, which means that million fewer children died than in 2002. Global inequality, as measured by the Gini coefficient, declined for the first time since the Industrial Revolution. And here in the US, we saw the definite end of ideas about wage stagnation. Since 1990, if you look at individual purchasing power and total compensation, wages increased by 60% on average. But of course, even more important is what we can buy for it. One hour of work today buys us four times more than in 1980. According to the Simon Abundance Index produced by my colleague Marian Tupi, uh, looking at 50 basic commodities. And I never cease to be amazed by the fact that those who fall below the poverty line in the United States now own more amenities like dishwashers, washing machines, dryers, air conditioners, television sets, and of course computers and cell phones, than the average American did in 1970. That's the power of growth and of innovation. In historical terms, we are all the 1% if we have a bathroom and indoor plumbing. As late as 1950, less than a third of US households did. So, despite all the very real horrors of the world, things are pretty good. Isn't that surprising? Isn't it strange? How did things turn out so well, even though everything was so bad? Even though we had no plan, even though we were constantly being surprised by these shocks and these horrors. To me, it seems very much like a, a great story I heard recently about Mario Puzzo. You know, the um, author of the famous Godfather novels, he also adapted the novels for the big screen. And he got an Academy Award for doing it. And he thought, after having made such a tremendous success and after having earned that Oscar, that Academy Award, he thought, I'd better learn how to write for the big screen. Because he didn't know. He had never went to school or read books on this. So he bought this book on screenwriting. And on the first page, it said, the best way to learn screenwriting is to watch the Godfather movies. <laughs> because that's how you do it. So he didn't have a plan. He didn't follow anybody else's script. He put one foot in front of another and improvised and adapted to changing circumstances. And that's how we do it. That's what entrepreneurs and innovators and businesses do all the time. Adapt and improvise and innovate us constantly, innovate ourselves out of troubles and problems. It worked because there wasn't one plan, but there were millions of small plans incrementally implemented and constantly adapted to changing circumstances. That's what we learned, I think, from the pandemic. Some people still say that 
this teaches us that we need big government and we need protectionism and we need to repatriate production. But if you look at what really happened, trade and global supply chains didn't fail us. They saved us because millions of entrepreneurs and businesses they looked at the problems at hand, the fact that the workforce didn't show up, they lacked necessary inputs and resources, and suddenly all the, the, the markets were blocked and it was difficult to get uh, goods in, in, into the hands of people. But they adapted. They tweaked manufacturing, they found other supplies of resources and intermediary goods, and they rerouted supplies constantly in real time so that we never ended up with those devastating shortages that we all expected. That's why we hoarded canned goods and toilet paper, right? Because we thought that, I think it made sense. If the half of the world's population end up in under house arrest, we'll face some devastating shortages. But it didn't, because businesses constantly adapt to a changing map. And then Putin invaded Ukraine, and they all had to do it once again. And we ended up soon again without those devastating shortages that people talked about. And we're led by nothing else but individual creativity, local knowledge, and the prize mechanism telling us what do we need? What do we have to do? Where do we have to move to to make sure that we will solve people's problems? And who did this the fastest? Which countries and which businesses managed the, the global pandemic better than others? The answer is still counterintuitive and surprising to most researchers who look into it. Those who were, had global complex supply chains you would think it's the opposite. If you have a simple supply chain, you would easily be, it would be easy to uh, adapt it to, to changing circumstances. But no, there's a reason why the saying doesn't go, put all your eggs in one geographical basket and protect it with tariffs and regulations and subsidies. Because then you only have to drop it once. Then if your one supplier is in an area under lockdown, game over. But businesses and countries with complex supply chains, they were used to complexity. They were used to negotiating, looking for new alternatives. They could turn to new suppliers and other workers in places that weren't under lockdown at that particular moment and managed to adapt much faster than anybody else. And the counterexample, obviously, the place where we really had a repatriated supply chain was uh, infant baby formula in the US. Through regulation, harsh regulations and tariffs, it was safe, it was close by. We had the factories close at hand, which meant that it only took problems in one factory to create a national shortage. So there is a reason why we have all those old proverbs and, and sayings about where to put our eggs, because they are actually built on hard-earned experience. Libertarianism. Classical liberalism, free markets, doesn't mean do nothing. It means that we should not have somebody at the top doing something that stops everybody else from doing their thing in accordance to their local knowledge because they are the experts. They can see what is going on. They can see what the shortages and the problems are and what they can do, what they can stop doing without creating even worse problems in other places. 
It is to say that one man or one government does not always know best. Only by net letting all that local knowledge being used and expressed in the price system and in the overall economy can we know better. And sometimes nobody knows better. Nobody knows when the world is changing rapidly in unpredictable ways. And then we have to leave it to a discovery process, a process of trial and error and discovery and learning. We have to leave it to experiments, to tests, to market feedback and adaptation and new experiments. And every, and this is essential, every intervention, every regulation, every tax makes it more difficult for all those millions and millions of people to adapt and improvise according to a changing terrain. Because that's all based on old knowledge about how we used to do things, how somebody else thinks you should do things, or how we did it in the past before we had the problems we have at hand. And that's why it is so incredibly dangerous with any kind of intervention. Because we have to face it, and you know this, I see so many successful and hardworking entrepreneurs and innovators in this crowd. Innovation is difficult. Wealth creation is hard. And I think that people who have never done it, they don't realize this. They just look at people who have succeeded, and they can see their success and their wealth, and they resent it, and think, why should they have it? They rarely think about what it took to get there. The risks, the work, the devotion, the fact that you always have to be on hand when somebody calls and needs you to solve a particular problem for them. The devotion, the focus, the energy it took to get there. As a Swedish entrepreneur once explained to me, which I think, still think is the best way of understanding what entrepreneurship is about. Entrepreneurship and innovation is like a minefield. It's like a field full of lethal mines. There, on the other side of that minefield, is new knowledge, capacities, goods and services that could enrich the whole of society. New innovations, new capacities, everyday low prices on what used to be luxury goods for the few. But our path there is blocked by this minefield of uncertainty, of technological dead ends, of unpredictable consumers, sometimes difficult workers on strike, shifting business cycles, interest rate changes, capricious policies, and plain bad luck. It's dangerous out there. We have no idea where the mines are located. The only way to find a way to the other side is to get as many people as possible out there and look and try to find a safe path that we can all follow. And nothing can inspire people to make this risky journey of discovery more than the hope of getting a substantial share of the rewards, of the profits, if they succeed. Because most people will hit a mine, but a few actually get there. Hopefully, they'll get something for it. But what's important for humanity is that a safe path is found, a path that we can all follow to the other side that will enrich and improve our lives and will make it possible for us to attack the next minefield. Because this is the only way in which humanity can ever progress, by constantly venturing out into the unknown, even though it's risky and dangerous. And this 
is why government intervention and all these ideas about uh, someone in charge knowing best what to do, how to do it, has such a long and disappointing track record. Because it's a way of replacing the wisdom of billions and their journeys of discovery with the preferences of a few people at the top who do not even risk their own money and do not face the constant feedback from a market process. So, and this is what I write about in the book, price controls created shortages, tariffs destroy jobs and purchasing power, and attempts to use taxpayers' money to second-guess our decisions have systematically picked losers. Because as the saying goes, governments are bad at picking winners, but losers are good at picking governments. And picking, and picking the pockets of taxpayers, I might add. The list of previous experiments of uh, this ambitious industrial policy reads more like a list of accidents. We got inefficient shipyards and steel plants. We got the war on cancer, production of synthetic fuel from coal, the supersonic airliner Concorde. We got France's Minitel. We got corn-based ethanol. We got Solyndra. We got Germany's Energiewende. We got Foxconn in Wisconsin. And we got Quero. We got Quero. Do you remember Quero? No, of course you don't. Because Quero was the ambitious European project of building a European Google. Because we need national champions in Europe as well. So the French president and the German chancellor, with the help of the European Union, they spent hundreds of millions of dollars of the taxpayers' money to build a European um, search engine. And uh, it collapsed within a year. Um, failure is OK. We all fail. That's part of life, because the future is unknown. But the problem with making the government make the decisions with the taxpayers' money is that we remove the feedback and the adaptation that makes failure into a learning and a discovery process, where we channel that knowledge, the capital and labor into what's more successful, because suddenly you just put more money into what fails rather than the opposite. My point is that this new interventionism, this, these supposedly new ideas about how we should from top down pick winners and repatriate and reindustrialize and so on, that's not new. We've done it again and again. We've done it before and we know where it leads. To me, it sounds a lot like that Brazilian prisoner who spent five years digging a tunnel to escape. Did you hear about him? He spent five years digging a tunnel to make his escape. And when he finally escaped through this tunnel, he discovered that it ended up in the God room. <laughs> We've seen this before. We know where it leads. It'll take us to a place where we don't want to go. It won't set us free it will put us into a bad place. And the only possible argument for top-down government intervention is that a small, small, smart group, a great group of politicians and administrators know better than the millions of people who are experimenting and are in constant contact with feedback from prices, from markets, from customers. 
I don't know if you think that our political leaders have impressed lately, um, but to me, they seem barely fit to handle their own business, much less everybody else's business. But I do understand the temptation. When the world seems dangerous, we have this inbuilt, ancient psychological tendency to look for a savior, to look for someone to guide us to a safe place. We look for strong men or for big governments to protect us and, and just tell us what to do, and that will feel safe. And that's really why I wrote the Capitalist Manifesto. And that's why Cato does what we do, to ask people to second guess this impulse, to count to 10 and consult principles, economic knowledge, history, and empirical data before we do something that we will come to regret. You know the old saying, insanity is doing the same, repeating the same mistakes over and over again and expecting another result. I think that Bidenomics and national conservatism that's really repeating all the costly mistakes of government overreach and expect something else than ending up in the God room that we try to escape from, especially in an unpredictable, strange world that is changing constantly. We need to have patience and wait for the discovery process of millions of people who know better because they are the ones who have the knowledge on factory floors, on the ground. That's why I think, and this is my conclusion, that the populists and the interventionists and the technocrats who want to decide and the administrators who think that they know best, who don't have the patience for this discovery and learning process of millions, who think that it's stupid to wait because we think that those millions might be smarter than one guy in charge and just want the government to do something to act quickly to solve all our problems. That's why they always make me think of that joke about the job interview. You know, these guys walk into the interview and they say, it says here in your CV that you're quick at mathematics. Yeah, 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 sure. So what is seven time times 19? Oh, that's 63. What? That's not even close. No, but it was quick. <laughs> Thank you. And now I do think we have uh, time for the wisdom of not millions, but, but a large crowd and, and open the floor for questions and thoughts. I love your chapter on the environment. And I was wondering if you could comment on our development of nuclear power. Oh, that's, that's a great question. And my son would be happy to hear about that because he's obsessed with nuclear power. He's 16, so he's not in the business yet, but he thinks it's the solution to, to all our problems. Well, the problem with environmental policies and with the energy policies that someone always knows best, right? Someone picks a pet technology, some sort of power source that will solve all the problems. And for some weird reason, quite recently, we've had this attitude, uh, especially in, in Europe and in Germany, that we just don't like nuclear power. It happens to be a non-fossil fuel, uh, non-fossil source of, uh, of energy, but we 
just don't like it, so we abolish it. That was the Energiewende, which has turned out an awful failure, according to most German experts I talked to as well. Incredibly costly, it's led to the highest energy prices in, in Europe, and especially when their only other source was getting something from Putin. <laughs> um, but, but also, it's led them to fire up some old coal plants. So it's even led to increased fossil fuel um, con consumption in, in Germany compared to other places, like Sweden, where we get almost half of our, our electricity from nuclear power, and, and um, places like France and, and the US, where we've managed to reduce uh, CO2 emissions while having rapid economic growth. So it tells me that it's a bad idea to just say, we don't like this for particular reasons. This is a safety issue, but when you look at the data of uh, health and safety, uh, I mean, more people fall off roofs and die when they install solar power than who've ever died from, from nuclear power. So, so that's not the issue. But I would say this, and I'm telling my, my son this as well, that that does not mean that we should now heavily subsidize nuclear power and go all in. Because I think that was another mistake in the 1960s and 70s when Sweden and France and others built so much nuclear power. Because back then, all the politicians thought that nuclear power is the only way forward. So they heavily intervened and subsidized this. And what does that mean? It means you lose this whole incremental process of you're doing something and you learn something while doing it and you adapt and then you can do it in a better way. If you just build 100 nuclear power plants in the same kind of way, it'll be incredibly costly and it'll be more costly and it'll be less safe than the nuclear power that we could have had. And that actually created much of the backlash against nuclear power, I think. So the solution now is open up for, uh, for nuclear and all other potential energy sources but don't pick a winner, even if some experts and, and my son, and he's very smart, thinks that this is the future. It could be, but we'll see because it's always a learning process. So you're absolutely right. You do a great job explaining things. I think back to when, 40 years ago, when I was in high school and learned about this and thought this is absolutely right. It's just a matter of time before everyone agrees with this and things are great. And yet, 40 years later, um, we're in the minority. So my question, like, and a pretty small minority. Uh, so my question is, why don't more people agree with us? <laughs> yeah. yeah, that goes to the heart of uh, my chronic anxiety and depression. Um, I think we have to realize that facts don't speak for themselves, because there are so many other things going on. One of them being our inbuilt um, attitudes and, and temptations, and some of them are ancient, and some of them were developed in a world that didn't see rapid economic progress and innovation. I think that one reason why so many people think that the world is a zero-sum game, and if someone benefits, if someone profits, someone gets rich, or trading partners benefit, we have to lose. I think the one reason is that, you know, mankind has been around for a long time, but innovation and growth is recent. So once upon a time, it made sense to think that if someone was prosperous, he probably took it from you. It takes more time 
And it takes many more steps of explanation to go through such counterintuitive things that we can actually all become more prosperous simultaneously at the same time with free exchange and mutual benefit and, and, and rapid innovation. And that's, you know, that's why Margaret Thatcher said we on our side, we have to go up, uh, wake up earlier in the morning than the other side because our case is more difficult. Yes, facts are on our side, but this mentality is not on our side. So that's why we have to do it. But it's also the case that we are social conformists, right? So when people start to say that, look, those ideas, they, they did fail, right, didn't they? Haven't we seen that? It wasn't as simple as Reagan and Thatcher and those guys said back then. It's so easy to, to join in, and that's why I would um, uh, repeat what Peter said in his introduction. If we think that we're about to fail, we will fail. Because it's not linear, we'll face backlashes again and again for, for, for many reasons. Uh, we've seen that throughout history, that we often see a backlash against ideas of freedom and, and openness. What decides whether those backlashes succeed or not? It's whether we all follow along. If those who, the fence sitters, join the other side. If those who know better go quiet. And, sorry? Yeah, yeah, but that's, we like competition. We, and we have to step up to the competition then, yeah, and speak our minds and, and do better and go to where the sinners are and uh, in campuses and even on TikTok to explain why, uh, why these ideas are important. Oh, um, one of the major issues the world's facing today, not just in the United States, but of course in Europe, <clears throat> excuse me, is the issue of migration, uh, southern Europe, of course. And of course, everybody knows what's going on on our southern borders. I hate to put you in a spot, but do you have any point of view you could give us on, the, on that particular program or issue? Yeah. Well, you know, all things equal, more people are better. That's something we've learned. Uh, the more people who come up with ideas and uh, can contribute to um, our talent base and um, what we're doing, the better off we are. Why is the United States better in AI than uh, any other country? Some people thought that China would be the first ones coming out with lots of, of great AI products, but well, one reason was that their task was twice as difficult because they had to teach the AI what to say, but also what not to say. Um, but another thing is that uh, America is open to the best AI experts in the world. And uh, it has some 65% of the elite researchers and two thirds of them are born somewhere else. And a quarter of them are born in China. So I think that if we wanna continue to uh, outperform everybody else. We are gonna have to be open to talent and hard work and ideas from other places. Now there are also other problems. That's the economic case and that's the case for um, a, a prosperous future for America and for Sweden and, and other places. But obviously it also depends on other things. Uh, who is coming to our places? Do they end up in, in jobs and being integrated or on welfare and uh, ending up somewhere else and not being integrated with an American mindset and so on? 
And obviously, that's another concern, and we have to deal heavily and, and think heavily about those issues. To me, it seems like the best idea, best way of creating more patriotic Americans is to, to welcome them in an orderly way. Not to have this kind of chaos at the southern borders, but creating an orderly way where you actually apply and say, this is me, this is my background, this is what I can do, and vet them. And if they want to come here to, um, to contribute, to work, and to, to produce and become the next Nobel laureates, that's great. Uh, and others might not be as great. And, and that's, I think, that my colleagues at Cato are, are working on immigration policy. Have, have some of the best ideas on how to turn chaos into an orderly process. Okay, uh, I'm Mark from Chicago. I'm reading your Wikipedia page, it's very long. So, <laughs> uh, so we're in Chicago, most of us are from Chicago. There's, uh, we have 7,000 units of government here, park boards, school boards, village boards, uh, all this stuff. And we have 43,000 elected officials. We have the most of the 50 states, even though we're number seven, I think, in population. So you're right here at ground zero of the biggest problem we have is too much government. So you're here. What can we do to lower the size, scope, and cost of government? Give me a 30-second answer. <laughs> you know, if I had known that, I wouldn't have been perhaps such a happy warrior as I was. And it sounded this optimistic beat uh, up here. Uh, this is a challenge. And, you know, bureaucracy tends to reproduce itself in an, uh, in an internal way. It takes a constant effort. It doesn't happen by itself. And that's, uh, you know, why this idea that libertarianism is do nothing. I mean, if we were really to do nothing, big government would be bigger than the Chicago uh, uh, government. It takes constant vigilance to, uh, to attack this. And I, but I think at the, at the heart of it, there are two things. First of all, there is this inbuilt tendency and self-interest to reproduce these levels of, uh, of, of administration and regulation. But there's also a mentality. There's a lack of belief and faith in the idea that those millions of people who are actually, who are the experts, that they can do a better job than someone at the top. And that's why it takes both this, this policy-oriented response, but it also take, takes a, a struggle, a battle of ideas. So. Um, yeah, sorry. It's, it'll take some time. <laughs> I've got a question. I'm not sure if this is covered in your book. I'll have to read it. But uh, what are your thoughts, and are you in favor of abolishing the Federal Reserve or the ECB or even the RICS Bank while we're on it? What do you think about central banking in the context of free markets? Well, you know, if we've learned something over the past two decades, is that the, the argument that uh, we need a central bank to make sure that this whole monetary business is an orderly process, that's not how it worked out, right? Uh, on the contrary, we've seen a discretionary power and a massive, massive creation of uh, surplus liquidity and printing of money, the likes of which we've never seen before, just during the pandemic. Since the start of the pandemic, the world's central banks added roughly a United States to, uh, to, the, monetary to the money supply. 
And uh, of course, that's, that's led to the problems of inflation, but it's also led to, to other problems. We've distorted the whole price mechanism, but also, I mean, the value of money. We've seen the rise of so many zombie companies that shouldn't be alive today because they can't really produce, they don't make much of, of revenue, but they still have those cheap loans. And for banks, it's just too costly to push them over the edge, and they, they wouldn't make much from it. Um, which meant that th this is one reason why I think we've seen low productivity in, in recent, um, well, since the financial crisis. So it's all been a terrible, terrible mess. And the case for central banks doing a good job is not a strong one today. What we should do instead, whether we should have stricter rules or replace it with a uh, Milton Friedmanite uh, computer that solves the case, or whether we should just uh, denationalize money, as Hayek proposed. I'm open to suggestions, <laughs> but it's definitely the case that we need something else. Okay, so just one more, oh. I'm afraid. Uh, thank you, sir. I, I, I come from a very much of a, a libertarian uh, background, very strongly. Uh, but I do, I do question sometimes if you want to have your defense industry totally dependent on, on, on stuff that you don't control. Uh, and, and in addition, I, I, I think every once in a while we have to give credit where it's due. Uh, I don't think that Operation Warp Speed was a waste of, 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 of money. Uh, what, I, what I don't understand how do you somehow or other get the warp speeds and the defense industry that you need in a very rapidly changing world with a very rapidly changing technological content to it? How, how, how do you do that? I, I'm not sure that even uh, somebody like me believes that the market is going to, going to do that uh, without, 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 without something. I don't know what the something is. Yeah. That's my question. Well, that's a great question, and uh, I will try to give you the briefest of uh, answers because apparently I have 30 seconds left. <laughs> but, uh, but starting with um, warp speed and then moving on to uh, the military, I'd say that yes, I think the warp speed was a success, and I'm a Star Trek fan, so I love the fact that it's called the warp, warp speed project. But why was it a success? Was it a spending? I don't think so, because the, the ones who came up with the first vaccine against COVID-19 was Pfizer, and they weren't part of Operation Warp Speed. They did it all with their own resources. So the most important thing was that regulatory processes were sped up, and it was simplified, and it was okay suddenly for bureaucrats to actually work uh, simultaneously on different tracks rather than just waiting for the, the first one to be done. That changed it all. And, and this, I think, is a lesson that should be applied to all other spheres. If you can do it, if necessity is the mother of, not of all in, innovation, but of regulatory uh, sort of... Uh, opening up for, for, less, for, for deregulation, well then why don't we do it in other areas? Because we have other problems to solve. So, so I think that's, uh, that's what we should learn from, from Operation Warp Speed. When it comes to military technology, I think there are two things. I agree, it's not a good thing for Sweden to be completely dependent on military supplies from Russia. I mean, that's 
just stupid. We wouldn't do that, right? No, so, 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 so there's some, some uh, point of um, looking through your supply chains when it comes to, to necessary things like that. But it makes sense to be not entirely dependent on Swedish supplies or for the US to be only dependent on, on US ones. One reason why Western countries have not been able to quickly rearm once it's needed, for example, more ammunition for Ukraine, is the fact that every single European country has its own standards and its own national industry. So it's incredibly difficult to scale it up in the way that we, we would want to do. So I think we need more trade there as well. Yes, it's a good thing to look through our supply chains and see are there areas where Putin or Xi Jinping can suddenly sort of suffocate us. And there are some such areas, but rarely in the areas where our protectionists say there are. <laughs> you know, they, they're saying that we need these, these subsidies to, for the steel industry because the military needs steel. Yeah, but the Ministry of Defense says, yeah, we would need 2% of America's present production. Uh, perhaps if it's, if it's the world war, we might need 3% of it. We don't need to scale it up. That's an excuse for protectionists to, to argue something else. But there are some areas, especially when it comes to minerals and metals. And that's another important uh, area, I think. Both Russia and China are, are very uh, dominant in, in those areas. Why is that? Is that because we lack minerals and metals? You know, Sweden has just found a field of rare earth minerals in, in northern Sweden, in Kiruna, which is probably the biggest on the planet. It's just that we don't want to use it for environmental purposes. And I understand there are things we have to look through. Is, is the groundwater affected and so on? But yeah, look through that. I'm not sure that Congo is better at protecting groundwater than Sweden. <laughs> or that the US would be worse at doing that. And we just found Nevada-Oregon border, found the greatest supplies of lithium, perhaps on the planet. So, I mean, perhaps we could dig some of our own resources and, and deregulate that area before we use it as an excuse to implement protectionism in other areas. So I think that's another case where the case for global capitalism is, is strong. Thank you.